Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on the Criterion Collection and cinema. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we enter the magic hour with Days of Heaven. In early 20th century Chicago, Bill, an aimless young man played enigmatically by Richard Gere, kills his boss in the steel mill and flees to the fields of Texas with his younger sister Linda, portrayed by Linda Mance in a remarkable child performance, and lover Abby, enacted by the enchanting Brooke Adams. As they find work on a farm, Bill learns the reclusive owner is terminally ill and concocts a plan for Abby to marry him. Reluctantly agreeing to the plan, Abby and the farmer, played by playwright Sam Shepard in his first film performance, marry, only to discover that his health recovers and the two start to form a true loving marriage. The human drama plays out against the backdrop of poetic cinematography, an ethereal score, and innovative voiceover narration from Linda's perspective of these events. Cheered by its admirers as one of the greatest films of the 1970s, Terrence Malick's sophomore effort as writer and director is one of the most beautifully filmed pictures ever made and is truly a one-of-a-kind film. Released by the Criterion Collection initially on DVD in 2007, and subsequently re-released on Blu-ray and now 4K UHD, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven continues to inspire with its unique sensibilities and quiet temperament. Join Matt and me as we ponder the twilight of love in Days of Heaven. Well, Matt, it's been a little while since we've talked about Terrence Malick. I know we both have... uh, strong opinions about him and have really especially his earlier works found them to be fairly strong and interesting films days of heaven almost was kind of a a film of legend uh because after it malik disappeared he didn't make another movie for 20 years until 1998's the thinner line which we have already discussed on this podcast and i was torn whether to pick uh days of heaven or badlands as uh our podcast here uh, but my reason for this is entirely selfish. Uh, as you know, one of my dogs, uh, I've got three Britneys. Uh, uh, sadly, my favorite and uh, the eldest of them all, Marty, died a couple months ago, uh, named after Martin Scorsese. Uh, but then I, I purchased a new one uh, and have a new puppy that I'm training and getting into uh, the swing of things. And as always, I named him after a director, and I chose Terry after Terrence Malick. So this is a shameless plug of the of the new britney spaniel in the house here that's right uh, and uh, a chance to to explore his namesake a little bit uh, as we gather this evening uh, but this movie i first heard about this uh from a, a uh, not a professor but from one of my high school english teachers who mentioned that he found the cinematography in it to be exquisite and really kind of the quintessential essence of what cinematography can and can uh, can do in terms of being able to tell a story and really help uh, develop the themes of a film. Hmm. So that's what uh, inspired me to go search this out and watch it. And it's definitely a film that has grown on me over the years. I think when I first saw it, I was underwhelmed by it, but have come to really appreciate it. Uh, I texted you before we recorded that this is definitely a sui generis film. Uh, it is really one of a kind. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it because I don't believe we've ever really touched based on this movie other than maybe in passing. Yeah, I, you know, Days of Heaven is it's kind of a mixed bag for me. I mean, I 
I'm a huge Malick fan, as you know, and uh, this film is very important uh, in his filmography for a lot of different reasons. I mean, not the least of which is his style is very much manifested, I think, in this picture. And on that level, I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, it, it's stunningly beautiful. The visuals are spectacular, uh, though I, I do think its use of magic hour is kind of overdone. You know, it, it's almost too much of a good thing at times. I feel like, man, you, you know, it's so beautiful. It's it's just like so overwhelming that I find myself craving more of a contrast in some of the visuals and maybe saving those magic hour moments for uh, a more climactic part of the film or just something that would make more of an impact on a narrative level. Uh, so at times I feel like, okay, this film is really depending on the visuals to compensate for maybe a lack of storytelling or a lack of plot. And, and this is something that's leveled at Terrence Malick quite a bit, uh, especially with his later films is really just a lack of story structure. And it's interesting how this film really falls into that in many ways, though it does have a, pretty clear story and uh it's quite straightforward but still very compelling uh overall i really enjoy this film i think it's a strong picture but it has not resonated with me on the same level of his uh, other films over the years that kind of surprises me i i would have expected this to be one that you held up in higher regard uh, because it is very much a, a film of feeling, right? I mean, I yeah. think a lot of it's 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 intuitive and it's it isn't really tied into plot mechanics. Although I I think there is actually a a real clear movement of story, but it is subtle and it it is character driven more than it is plot driven. But there is I still think definitely a story that emerges very clearly here. Unlike oh, think of the. The films he did uh, after To the Wonder, um, what was Night of Cups? Night of Cups one. and Song of Songs, or right? Yeah. I mean, where it just is just people walking around or Song to uh, Song. I, I always get the the title of that one wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually haven't even seen that one to be honest. But um, so I, mean, I do think that this film captures his spirit as a filmmaker quite effectively. I don't think it's as strong as Badlands. I don't think it's as strong as The Thin Red Line. So it's mm-hmm. the weakest of those three to me. But I still think it's quite quite an exceptional work of art. Uh, I think the right place for us to begin is talking about the visuals. Uh, yeah. So uh, this film won the Oscar for Best Cinematography. Nestor Almendros uh, is the credited cinematographer. Haskell Wexler, also a truly accomplished cinematographer, joins in on this as well. According to Wexler's own uh, account, he filmed actually maybe even a majority of it because the production ran so long. Almendros needed to leave to go shoot another film for Francois Truffaut. Uh, But nonetheless, as the transition was happening, they worked together, they collaborated to make sure what Almendros had established as the visual for it continued on. Uh, And I think it's actually quite an accomplishment that you really can't get the sense of two different cinematographers working on this film it really does flow perfectly between the two and in a very, it's a very distinctive style because it's it's taking some of the things that were occurring at that time cinematically in terms of for example handheld 
not shaky cam, so to speak, but handheld work, particularly in the early scenes in the steel mill, right? You can see that there where it has a kind of documentary feeling to it uh, and an, an immediacy to it. But then it also blends in, for example, the study cam, right, where that is moving around. That's a new invention that had just come out. A lot of this was filmed in 76 when that was first being put to use. Wexler, I think, was actually the first to use it with uh, another movie shot at the same time, Bound for Glory. Uh, but it was starting to become more prevalent in a lot of cinema at that time. And then there's just these beautifully staged scenes, you know, where the camera's locked off in an interior setting or uh, doing a simple pan or a dolly shot or something like that or crane shot, right? So it's blending all these different cinematic styles and techniques. And what I find so impressive is that it does really give you the sense of being in a time, not just in a place, but in a time. Uh, that might be partly just achieved also by the use of the still images over the opening credits, because that really does give you the feel of being back and you're, you're looking at real images of real people um, with the, uh, the, the famous use of the, the source music there. I'm blanking on the piece's title now. Carnival of the Animals. Carnival of the Animals, right. Yeah, so that very famous use of that is a, a bit of the sound for the beginning of the film, right? Really, really helps establish this quality for the film. But the cinematography keeps it up. And I... You know, it is obviously very clearly lovingly crafted and created. I don't know that it ever gets too distracting. I, I never really felt the the magic hour was too overdone because there's a lot of stuff that's shot, at least it seems to me, that's shot in the right in the middle of the day, right? I mean, you get the feel that when these workers on the farm are just kind of milling about, that it's the middle of the day, it's the afternoon, it's not, you know, the twilight. And uh, the obviously the, the locust attack, uh, when it comes to the crops and they have the, the fire that starts in the middle of the night. Uh, that's a very different visual palette because of the, the nature of what's going on there. But it is, I think, a film that's told in visuals. And that's actually what I like about this movie is that they stripped out most of the dialogue in the editing process. Supposedly there was a lot of dialogue that just Malik eventually with Billy Weber cut out and they they moved it purely into this free-flowing form that was organized around the voiceover narration uh but the cinematography really tells you the story and i think that's a that's exactly what you want movies to do yeah the visuals are spectacular and, and the the transporting quality of this film is definitely worth emphasizing right i mean you really do feel like you're back in this period um and there's a real dreamlike quality to just the setting, right? This, uh, these endless wheat fields and this one house that's just kind of off by itself in the middle of these vast expanses. It has a very surrealistic quality just in and of itself. And then you add, um, add the magic hour to that. And there's a real haunting aspect to this film. And, just seeing human beings kind of interacting with these landscapes in interesting ways. Uh, it's, it definitely carries the film in many ways. Right. So it's something that, uh, that makes this film memorable. But, uh, at the same time, I, I do feel like each time I see it, it's just 
maybe it's just too overwhelming. It's like these images are just too beautiful <laughs> on a consistent basis. It's like uh, I, I want to see a little bit more, uh, a little bit more contrast there. But I, you know, to your point about the uh, the documentary style portions, that's some of my favorite or favorite aspects of this film, or just Malik in general, is really those more free flowing segments of the film. Uh, kind of the elliptical nature of the storytelling. But I, I I do wonder how startling this must have been to audiences. I mean, I, I guess this is mid to late 70s, so maybe audiences were a little bit more savvy about seeing different films stylistically. But you think of that opening scene in the, the steel mill or in that factory, and clearly the characters are talking to each other and we can't hear them, right? <laughs> because the machinery is so loud. And it almost seems like a, a mistake in the sound mix or something, but then you realize what 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 Malik is doing, and and yeah, he just seems very interested in just stripping out uh, the dialogue and just being as expressive as possible. And and uh, yeah, I, I I do appreciate that, but it's it's nice to have a little something more to grab on grab onto sometimes. Uh, but Sam Shepard, you know, I I think he's. We can probably get into the performances. We can start with with Sam. He he probably gives the most memorable performance to me in this film, even though he's not in the film that much. Uh, being his first screen performance, he has a real sense of kind of gravity and loneliness to his character that I I, I really find compelling, and he seems very of the period, right? When you have period pictures like this, it's very common for the actors playing the parts to still seem like modern actors <laughs> in a period film. And, and I don't get that sense in this picture in general, but especially with, uh, with Sam Shepard and, uh, and, and Linda Manns. But uh, yeah, I'll kick it back to you. Any, any thoughts on the performances? No, I think you, you hit a point there that they don't really feel like they're, of the 1970s at all, right? So Richard Gere is cast as Bill, although it was offered and nearly accepted by John Travolta. He couldn't do the film because the, I think a CBS or whatever was the station that he had, that played Welcome Back Cotter, wouldn't let him out of that to go film this. Uh, so that's why you wind up with Richard Gere in it. But, you know, they had talked initially about having Dustin Hoffman or having Al Pacino play this part. And I think they would have been two of the moment and they would have been too caught up and I'm a star and I'm yeah. an actor and you know yes it might have gotten you a bigger budget you could have maybe done certain things with it because of that but it would have also I think taken away the sense of being of that period right and all of the cast because of the fact that so many of them are unknown or were very young and mostly untested as actors uh, was to its credit and Sam Shepard, you singled him out. I think he rightly is singled out here because he does convey a kind of the the, na the nature of an introvert, right? I mean, he's just a very shy man, a quiet man, a, kind of a complicated man. You don't quite understand him, but he seems like a good man. You know, he doesn't seem like he's not. There's nothing indicating he's a mistreating of his uh, of his workers. There's nothing indicating he's trying to be a predator on Abby, right? He yeah. sees her, he notices her, he's. He's enchanted by her, and he, he kind of has a, 
an affection for her, and then you know this is exploited. Actually, the people who are harming him are, are really the others, right? And Bill yeah. in particular is is the villain here, if you want to think about it from that perspective. Uh, but I think Sam Shepard's quality that you're describing there is coming at the fact that uh, because he wasn't really a tested actor, he couldn't really try to dress himself up like a a star would have sure. in this particular part. Um, and I think that that's what allows these parts to sort of disappear. The the performers disappear into the characters uh, because even Richard Gere, who I'm not a really big fan of as an actor, I really like him in this part because I think he really works well as, as Bill. I mean, you, you don't quite understand him. You know, he's, he's, he's a part that you're, you're obviously somewhat sympathetic to him in the sense that it's kind of your protagonist. But he does nothing but terrible things, really. He's a bad yeah. person. Uh, he murders a man at the beginning over a dispute of some sort. You know, that doesn't even it's intentional, but nonetheless, he's responsible for the man's death. He flees. He doesn't take responsibility for it. Um, and then he uh, concocts a, a way of trying to defraud a human being out of his land and his money, right? Uh, by just uh, let's inherit this. And he's he's got this lover uh, that they are impersonating as being brother and sister, uh, which it should be noted, this is a change from the screenplay, as I understand it, that in the screenplay, Abby and Linda are sisters, and Bill is just kind of a drifter that's with them. Mm-hmm. Right? And that it was in the voiceover narration that they shifted it, because you actually, if you listen to the dialogue in the film, the little bit that's there, they never actually... He never calls Linda his sister. He never. She never calls him her her brother in the actual dialogue. It's only through the voiceover narration, which we'll have to talk about at some point here, uh, that gives that establishes that relationship. And I think that's actually interesting because, on one level, especially when he like just disappears for a while with that uh, circus troupe that comes in yeah. with the the kind yeah. of vaudevillian actors, it it makes sense that. Yeah, he would have just left them because he was just kind of a, a drifter and the, the boyfriend, but now he doesn't seem to have a place there. Um, whereas Abby sticking around with Linda after all of this wouldn't make sense quite the way it does now if she if they're not actually siblings, right? So it makes sense in the screenplay to have them be sisters and not to have it be a brother and sister dynamic. Um, but I think the fact that the film reframes it so that he's actually a sibling to Linda gives him a different kind of vibe because there is a part of him that seems to be genuinely affectionate towards Linda just for the sake of being compassionate and kind to her. And I think it introduces a humanity to him that would be lacking the other way. He'd become, I think a lot more dislikable character uh, if the narration didn't establish the, the bond of Bill and Linda as siblings. Um, but it ultimately, it's just a love triangle, right? I mean, it's a very simple story. We've seen how many movies with love triangles. But there's something about this love triangle that I find interesting because it is a complex relationship. I mean, Abby falls in love with the farmer and realizes he's a good man and actually kind of wants to be his wife and kind of sees this as a better life. Bill is still sitting around and doing this. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's to me a much more satisfying love story than a lot of others where the film doesn't hold your hand to tell you here's what you should feel or think about it and that's where i think there maybe is more to grab to grab onto here because it's presenting subtly 
but it's presenting for each of us a reflection upon what is the right thing for these characters in a very flawed, imperfect world uh, of their own doing in no, no small part. But what's the right thing for them to do now that they're in this situation? Whereas if you think of Titanic, for example, the, the love triangles very clearly spelled out for you. Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio, good. Billy Zane, bad. Kate Winslet, <laughs> go with Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Uh, this one isn't quite so much because everybody's complicated. I, I agree completely. I mean, I, I do like that aspect of this film, especially the fact that, you know, she does fall in love with Sam Shepard. And, you know, Bill's plan basically backfires, right? I, I like that aspect of it, that it's this sort of poetic justice. You know, he assumes, he overhears the doctor that he's going to die and, and he ends up not dying and... And it's like, well, whoops, uh, I didn't really think this one through, that this might happen. Uh, so that aspect of it, I, I like quite a bit because that's, that's interesting. And, and the fact that he's, he's never painted as a complete villain, right? As you said, even though he's doing bad things, uh, he, he does come across as someone that's just bitter about his place in life. I mean, I think that conversation that he has with Sam Shepard, where they're just sitting out and Richard Gere talks about how he kind of realized at some point in his life that he's sort of ordinary and he, he's probably never going to make a big score or, or have the status in life that he wants. And, and that's something that just gets to him. You know, it's not something that he is ever content with. And, and I think that that motivates his actions more than anything is, is this desire to find a shortcut to, to the, the status that he, he's been seeking his whole life. So, uh, not, not exactly a black hat villain sort of depiction. And I think the film is stronger for it. So I, I do like the subtlety in that regard. And I do like, uh, you know, how this, the romance plays out in an unconventional way, but it's not, it's not overdone either. I mean, I, again, the visuals are really communicating a lot here and, and the visuals are also commenting on how quickly these characters adapt to their new life as well, which I found interesting. You know, they're, they're coming from a very poor, uh, set of circumstances in Chicago and you know they're, they're basically hitchhiking on a, on the top of a train I mean they can't even <laughs> get shelter while they're working on this farm right it's like they're sleeping out in the the hay fields while it's snowing and and then all of a sudden they're they're brought into the fold and and they're they're wearing nice clothes and they're living in this beautiful house and in a very short period of time, they're, they're throwing food at each other. They're having a food fight. Uh, and just how a few months before then that, that plate of food was worth more to them than gold. So I, the film is making some interesting comments just about the human condition in general as well. I think I agree. It's, it's, um, again, it's all very quietly stated, right? Yeah. Because, it could be easily done where you punctuate some of those points you're you're noticing there. Like, for example, at the beginning, they have barely anything to survive. 
they're on the run and then all of a sudden they're doing well and they're playing and throwing food around. Um, it's, it could be easily highlighted to say to you, boy, you know, there could be a scene with Abby and Bill going, I can't believe where we are. You know, we used to be you know, only able to even eat. And now look at this. We've, we've got food that we can just throw around. Right. Uh, and I think a lesser film would do that. Or there would be some way where they would just super cut in. Like, cause this isn't a film with a lot of insert shots. No, you know? I mean, it's, it's very much letting things play out in the space, which is probably part of how it gives you that sense of a transportation to a, a time and a, uh, and a place because you really are able to absorb the environment just as the, you see them interacting with it. Right. Uh, and that element of it, I think really helps to make this film a film you explore. I mean, I think you, you feel this film and you, you, you contemplate and meditate with this film uh, because it is dreamlike and it is almost like a parable. I mean, it, it feels biblical or Shakespearean in a certain sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it really does have that quality of, of something larger and grander while being extraordinarily simple at the same time. I mean, it, it's really not a particularly complicated story and it's not a, a, a cast of thousands. It's, you know, uh, really four people, five people, I guess, if you count the foreman. <laughs> Uh, and then you know a couple of random people come up, you know Linda's friend and so forth. But it's basically pretty much uh, just a collection of a half dozen people doing stuff, right? And yeah, there's something beautiful that emerges within that because the film lets you explore and understand the the characters subtly and quietly over the course of of the the film's runtime, which should be noted. It's a fairly short film. It's only about ninety minutes. Uh, which is not what you think of when you think of Malick, yeah. <laughs> at least in today's day and age. It does really speak to a point we've made about Malick, I think, on several occasions. is just his films really either speak to you deeply or they don't, I think, a lot of times. And you can't necessarily explain why they do or why they don't. Uh, I appreciate this film. I like this film. I think it's visually spectacular, but, you know, has this spoken to me on the same level as The Thin Red Line or even To the Wonder? Certainly not. And it's like, I, I can't tell you why that is, right? And that that's one thing I just love about Malick's films is they have this spiritual quality to them that can resonate with you in a way that's very mysterious. And you may not understand ever why why something resonates with you so deeply. And, and it's not to say that you know, if you don't feel the same way that you're not spiritually attuned or you're, you're lesser, you know, <laughs> less of a person for feeling differently. It's, uh, it really has that kind of malleability to, to its power, uh, depending on, on who's watching the, watching the film. So that's, that's one thing I just appreciate about him as a director in general. Well, I think this movie in particular highlights how the film can speak to you differently at different points in your life. True. Right. So I saw this initially as a teenager, and I don't think I could appreciate the, the subtlety and the nuances of it because I I wasn't used to them. I wasn't able to pick them up. Uh, I was used to the, the spoon feeding that might come with a, a more traditional narrative and yeah. love story. Um, I don't even know if I would have described this as a love story when I first saw it, I'm not sure how I would have described it. You know, when I first saw it, 
More like um, a tragedy, probably. Yeah, maybe just boring. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as I've grown, though, I, I've come to appreciate the characters and I think get a sense of them differently, right? Bill's character, as much as I see monstrous choices, I don't see him as a monster because yeah. I think I get the desperation and the disappointment and the dissatisfaction and recognizing I have I have very few options and limited windows uh, in which I can work and do something. But the fact that he has the ability to make, uh, you know, choices within this framework uh, that are morally problematic does not all of a sudden make me turn on him the way I might have in an earlier stage of my life, right? Yeah. I don't excuse it, but I, I think I get him as a character better than I did before. I think I can relate to the farmer in a way that I couldn't when I was younger because you can kind of get the sense of the contemplation of death. Oh, my, I'm, I'm mortal. Uh, you know, now all of a sudden love and a family seem to make sense to me in a way that maybe the farming does not. Um, but one of the things I know that has always struck me with this film and maybe part of why I respond to it is this use of narration. So Linda Mance, as an actress, uh, was brought in to do this voiceover narration, which was not part of the original screenplay or part of the plan for the film, but was a way in which they could make the editing kind of work so they could make a film that flowed together. And it was a unique way in which they did the narration. They they had her free flow in her narration and they recorded it. So she commented, they just said, here's a scene, kind of explain to us what you think's happening in the scene or what you think is occurring here. And so some of it's that and some of it's, well, tell us what what you think uh, would be your character's perspective on the scene, and they recorded that. So it was a very, and you could tell as you're, you're as you're as you're listening to it, she kind of stumbles on her lines a little bit, yeah. but it feels it feels really truly like you are hearing someone's recollection, right? And I think that's part of why I like this film so much, and even that final bit of that narration where she's talking about her friend, uh, she didn't know where she was going, but I hope things would work out for her. She was a good friend of mine, right? It really, I think, captures the sense that this is telling me the story of literally millions, if not billions of people mm-hmm. uh, who are forgotten to history. They don't get movies made about them. They aren't going to be in a history book, but they're making their way through life and they're trying to work things out and you want something good to happen for them. And I think that's why this film resonates to me because... You know, especially through my line of work and just through all sorts of things, I've started to encounter those people more and more. And so I, I, when I see a film that's presenting that sensibility, it connects with me on that deeper level like you were discussing, right? Uh, but the narration here, it's just a very interesting thing. I don't think anything had ever been done quite like it before, and it was definitely commented upon at the time. Um, not really sure I've ever heard narration like it ever since either. It really seems to be a, a unique beast uh, in that regard. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you think the narration does or doesn't help the film. I, I think this is a great example of narration that does enhance a film, right? Because it's it's saying something beyond what we're seeing on screen. It, it's, uh, it's fleshing out a character, in this case, uh, Linda's character, who, you know, Linda Manns gives a great on-screen performance too, I think, but just, it feels so authentic. The, you know, the Chicago accent and the way, the way she's describing things very, there's a, there's a profound quality to what she's saying, but like her character is not recognizing that it is profound. Uh, 
until maybe the end of the film. You know, <laughs> there, there's an observational quality to her uh, voiceover that is, it's just interesting. It just adds an interesting layer to the film. And you, you can see how they were using this to stitch things together. Uh, and I think it's very effective. You know, The Thin Red Line uses a lot of voiceover as well. And a lot of Malick's films do. And this is really, I think, uh, one of his big strengths, just being able to not use it as a crutch. You know, even though it was really essential to making this film work editorially, so in that sense you could say, well, it is kind of a crutch because they didn't have maybe fully fleshed out scenes to put together, so they need something to kind of fill in the gaps. Uh, I, I guess I don't really see it that way. I, I, I think this is Malik's process, and it's a process that he's continued uh, in, in basically every film he's made. So, yeah, it, it's it's very effective. I, I, I don't have any issues with it here. Yeah, I can't think if there's a single Malik film that doesn't use narration. Maybe there's one that I'm not thinking of. but um, I think they all do, now that I think about it. I mean, Badlands had it. Yeah. Again, a lot more traditional kind of Badlands felt like it's a lot closer to the typical screenplay. The narration is good in it. It's Sissy, Pace, uh, Sissy Spacek uh, who is doing that narration, and it, it feels a lot more conventional, but still with its own interesting quality because of how she reads the, the work. Um, but this one, I think it's also just the choice of character to be doing the narration, right? I mean, you by having it not be really one of your leads, it gives you a, a sense of almost a commentary. Yeah. Right? Whereas if it was purely, you know, a, a story uh, told from, you know, Abby's perspective, right. You, you would, you'd start to say, well, of course then that makes sense as like her recollection, you know, it's, it's not becoming so much as this deeper reflection upon the world. Right. I don't think it can reach the, the sense of profundity that is achieved here. Uh, if it was told from Bill's perspective, you know, it'd be weird because he dies, but, uh, the other, the other thing is it would be, it would be, I think, again, just kind of, well, he's giving you his, his sequence of events, right? That Linda's the one telling us the story makes this more of a meditation, right? I mean, I, I don't think you could have that meditative quality if one of the other characters was telling us, what had happened. And you kind of get the sense that maybe we're seeing her memories too, in many ways. So yeah, it does, it does bring sort of a childlike perspective to a lot of what we're seeing. And it adds as an important dimension for sure. Well, let's talk a little bit also about the score. Ennio Morricone was the composer for the film's original score. Uh, I think it's extremely good. My understanding from how it was filmed, or excuse me, how it was composed, is he created certain pieces and then told Malik, you can put them wherever you want, do whatever you want with them, although he specifically requested what he wrote for the, uh, the fire scene when they're trying to clear out the locusts to be played at that spot. But otherwise told Malik, do whatever you want with it. Um, I think the score, it's almost invisible, right? Yeah. You know, technically, it's, it is invisible because it's, it's music, but it's almost imperceptible uh, in that 
as you're watching it, it doesn't really ever speak to you. It doesn't, it doesn't cry out to you, but it, boy, does it add an element uh, and a layer to this and help secure the, the atmosphere of this film. Um, Morricone is obviously one of the most famous composers in the history of movies. He's written some of the most noticeable and memorable pieces of music. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly obviously is the most famous, uh, I think, individual composition of his. But he can, as a composer, I think, be very upfront and strong mm -hmm. a, as a composer. This one is not. It's a very unique score from him, and I don't, I don't know quite what I would use to describe the score in terms of the music itself. But it really is uh, just a piece of work that matches the visuals perfectly. It's very harmonious, for sure. And it's very evocative of... Well, I, I almost wonder if Malik, you know, with subsequent composers he worked with, would tell them to kind of emulate what Morricone is doing in this film could, because that, there are musical moments that really reminded me of Thin Red Line, of um, even James Horner's score in The New World. And there's, it made me realize how much of an influence Malick has uh, on the music of his films. I mean, I, I knew that was a very important aspect to, to his pictures and his use of source music in particular is very, um, very well known. And, and we mentioned the source music that opens the film. So I, I, I don't think he's afraid to be very, very specific with his composers, but at the same time, you know, let them kind of have free reign to some extent. Uh, but any composer that, that works with Malik has to understand that the music they're writing for a particular scene, well, it's very unlikely that's where the music's going to end up. So <laughs> That scene and, may not even exist by the time the movie's finished, right? Yeah, James Horner was famously very, very angry. Uh, according to an interview with his, in his own words, I mean, uh, during during the making of the new world, or just very frustrated, I should say, with the process because he he felt he was writing this beautiful music that was synced perfectly to the scenes he was working with, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything would change uh, fifty times. So, yeah, it's it's part of Malik's process. But yeah, just wa watching this again, I I was just very struck at how cemented Malik's style is even in this film. Um, compared to his later pictures it does strike me this is where malik found himself as a director right yeah I mean, yeah for sure badlands i i think you would pick up that's a malik film it is it, it feels it much more conventional like i i, I kind of compare badlands to Wong Kar wai's first picture um uh, as tears go by it's it's something that has a voice in it but is still sort of trapped by conventional expectations or studio expectations uh you know lovers on the lamb in, in the case of badlands and, and that even spills over into this picture to some extent but this is very much yeah it feels like a full manifestation of his style right uh, yeah badlands could be made and be pretty close if not almost imperceptible in terms of its difference uh you know by another director of that era mm -hmm. nobody else could have i think come up with this film this way. I mean, I can think of how 
other directors of that period, Milos Forman or somebody, you know, could have gotten this film and said, hey, here's a screenplay, go make it, and made a very interesting movie, a good movie even, but it would have been wildly different than this. And yeah. I think this is where Malik really did become a distinct voice, which is probably why it was such a... Uh, a mythic film, right? Especially because of it, almost like a JD Salinger thing. He disappears afterwards. He's not heard from or seen. And, you know, did he, um, the rumors start circulating about what kind of man is this man? And, you know, is, is he, is he like a uh, Howard Hughes in his, you know, hotel room holed up somewhere collecting his own urine or something? I don't know. But I mean, Terrence Malick, I think here does create the template of all his future films to one degree or another, uh, which, you can say that's good and that's bad. I mean, good in the sense that, you know, he clearly has figured out his unique role that he'll bring to cinema. Obviously, there's some element to which I think he becomes trapped in, you know, maybe not trapped in the conventions of other people, but becomes trapped in his own conventions. Um, I don't feel like this is that. I don't think all of his films are that. But he definitely there is later on where you start going, he's kind of lost and wandering in his own process and his own yeah. self-reflection. But this film, I think because it's short, I mean, because I, I th- that's one thing I was thinking about watching at this time. This could be done as a big cast of a thousands epic, you know, where you have multiple scenes with, you know, the crops and you have, you know, all sorts of kind of, you know, intrigue about the, the farming and stuff like that. That It takes all that out. None of that's there at all. And it becomes this very simple human story. And it's over quickly enough that it doesn't make you feel tedious. Whereas I think... A film that, you know, was two hours long with this approach would really start to drag and you really wouldn't be able to sustain it. And you'd lose some of the mystery and some of the the interest in it. And, you know, the the character of Linda, you know, be, you know, the fact that she's really kind of an observer on screen for the most part. But then the commentator through the or the voiceover narration Right, I think that starts to be unbearable if it if it goes on too long. So this film has to be a short film in order for it to work the way it does. And sadly, after this, Malik never kind of seemed to capture that sense of quick, be done. You know, everything got longer because the Thin Red Line was an epic, and he sort of bought into more of that epic length on other things. And so I think this shortness of it uh, is really a big part of the success. Ninety minute films, let's bring them back. Yeah, it's it's a nice runtime. I mean, this this film is definitely influential, though. I I mean, you mentioned the kind of going back to the voiceover briefly, how unique the voiceover is. But I, you know, there's definitely been films that have kind of looked at this and trying to emulate that. Uh, David Gordon Green's George Washington opens with. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like almost a direct ripoff, you know, to the opening of this film in terms of uh, how the voiceover, uh, the style of the voiceover and how it's used. So, so definitely an inf- influential picture, you know. Well, I think influential, the, the even the idea of the magic hour, yeah, as being this thing to go for. I'm, it's not like sunsets weren't used in movies before this, but they were usually highly m- melodramatic, and um, you know, I think of how like a. Scarlett O'Hara, Gone with you know, the Wind, I will yeah, sure. Never be hungry again, kind of, you know, <laughs> that dramatic, you know, swelling sure. of music. This is just so, yeah, natural light, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know they did use in the cinematography some actual aids in the lighting, but it's not much. 
And it's a very dark film, right? I mean, in terms of there's there's certain scenes where it doesn't feel like you're getting to see a fully fleshed or fully lit face. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of, I think, why it feels like it's transporting you back in time. It, it doesn't look like it's lit like a movie it would light. And therefore, you get the feel of it being of the early 20th century versus 1978. Well, taking a look here at the Criterion release, uh, as I said, this has been released on disc three different times by them. So initially yeah. is a DVD and then later as a Blu-ray. And now just actually, uh, I believe in December, uh, it was released as a 4K with the Blu-ray disc included. Um, it's one of those films that is a feast for the eyes. So obviously a high definition and an ultra high definition transfer are going to really help this thing pop and uh, be a beautiful home theater experience. Uh, the also, the nice thing is that there's the 5.1 surround sound, uh, which works well with this particular picture uh, with the, with the way in which the uh, music is, is played as well. So a gorgeous looking transfer um, in terms of the, the, the Blu-ray and as well as the 4K, the reviews on that have been absolutely uh, out of this world, saying it's it's a great uh, improvement on the Blu-ray as well. It's got some nice features with it. Uh, audio commentary by uh, Billy Weber, as well as the production designer Jack Fisk, and the costume designer Patricia Norris, and casting director Diane Crittenden. Uh, that was a good commentary. I don't know if uh, you ever have had a chance to listen to it, Matt, but it's it's a really good one. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, Jack Fisk, you know, we should mention his production design, too. Uh, uh, he did some interviews on the Theater and Line disc, and always interesting to listen to him. So a long-time Malik collaborator. Yes. And father of Sissy Spacek, for those who That's right. know that. Yeah. So. And then there's also some uh, you know, uh, interviews. There's an audio interview with Richard Gere. Uh, there's also interviews with... Um, the camera assistant, um, John Bailey, or the camera operator, I should say, camera operator, John Bailey, as well as Haskell Wexler and actor Sam Shepard all gave interviews for this. Uh, I guess where do you stand, Matt? Haskell Wexler's credit on this film, he's listed as additional photography by. um, I think he's really truthfully deserving of a, a full-on director of photography, cinematographer credit. Yeah, they uh, probably should just have both, you know, both names listed under director of photography. Uh, kind of interesting that that, uh, that that couldn't happen. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly. I know that Wexler supposedly protested, and then somebody kind of, I don't know if it was a studio exec or somebody just said, listen, you're already a famous cinematographer. You've already won Oscars. Like, what do you have to gain here? And he kind of relented and said, fine. But it just strikes me as that this is actually one of the better collaborations of two cinematographers because there's other movies yeah. that have had it too. Yeah. And I think he deserves proper credit as a cinematographer here. Nestor Almendros, not trying to take away from him. He clearly was the initial voice and established everything. But that to me makes Wexler's work all the more impressive because. He, made it he was able to yeah. pick up and seamlessly continue another person's work. Yeah, I agree. I, I, it seems, I don't know, it seems kind of trivial to uh, exclude him. So, but a great release from Criterion. Uh, obviously, 
part of their ongoing because they have a lot of Malik in their in the collection. So uh, a a for a, a must for all fans of this film uh, to have in their own personal collection. And with that, we come at to the question of the night: Does Days of Heaven belong in the Criterion Collection? Ah, uh, this is a tough one for me. <laughs> you know. Can I make my argument for why it does belong there? Yeah, go for it. So I think it belongs in the collection, A, because it was clearly a big part of that era of filmmaking. And mm-hmm. so it captures something of what was going on there. I think it belongs in there because it is where Malick becomes truly Terrence Malick uh, as a director. And finally, I think it belongs there because the cinematography definitely does influence the way people will try to shoot films later on. Uh, so for those reasons, I think it belongs in the collection. Yeah, I think, I, I, I guess I'll say go ahead and include it. And, but, but the only reason I really agree with you on is that it's the manifestation of Malick's style, really. And I think that um, that's reason enough to include it. And it would mark, you know, the beginning of this 20-year hiatus, this kind of mythical period, this mysterious period. Visuals are spectacular. They're very strong, influential, definitely. But uh, that, that manifestation of, of his voice as a director, I think, is what makes this film really resonate over time. And I would be remiss uh, if I did not mention, uh, obviously, like I said, picked purely for personal reasons of uh, honoring my new puppy, Terry. Uh, but yeah. we are recording this uh, on January 15th of uh, 2024, which marks exactly 25 years to the day that The Thin Red Line went into wide release in U.S. theaters. Oh, man. So uh, more, that is totally happenstance. To I did not plan that, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I would be remiss because I noticed that when I was uh, just looking up some things uh, regarding Malik. Uh, so I thought better make sure to say that before we wrap things up here tonight. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Matt, for getting together here for this conversation. Please, everybody, join us next month when we'll be talking about Yvonne's childhood. Thank you and keep collecting. <laughs>